0: Well, what, what a celebration. What a magnificent, joyous celebration. I look forward to Christmas every time it comes around each year. I love Christmas, but Christmas is just a weird story if it isn't for Easter. It's, just a, it's a strange story if it isn't for Easter. And that's why Easter is truly my favorite holiday. Resurrection Sunday is my favorite day to celebrate as a church. I, I so look forward to the Passion Week. When Triumphal Entry Sunday comes, when Palm Sunday comes, it is just, I'm on cloud nine, to be able to look at our Savior, to be able to see Him in His glory. You think about all of the ways in which we saw His glory, even just this week with miracles, healing blind Bartimaeus, hanging out with Zacchaeus, the tax collector. You think about how he kick-started the, the whole Passion Week to begin with, the raising of Lazarus. We look at all of these amazing miracles and we stand amazed, and rightly so, at our our Savior. But our amazement about this day, about the resurrection, eclipses our amazement of all of Jesus' miracles put together because his resurrection eclipses all of those miracles. The miracle that we celebrate today is a miracle unlike any other miracle that Jesus performed. Last year, we had an amazing opportunity um, during Resurrection Sunday to look at the passage that Brian uh, just read for us this morning. To look at the historical account, so many people claim that it was a myth. Jesus wasn't truly raised from the dead. Or some people say maybe it wasn't truly a fiction, but it was just a symbolic. It was a metaphor that Jesus is raised in the hearts of his disciples. And they loved him so much that they couldn't keep him dead in their hearts and their minds and their souls. But Matthew 28 does not allow for that kind of thinking. It was an, an historical fact. We saw that. We saw that last year and maybe in the future years to come as Christ Bible Church on Easter Sunday. We will look at other proofs, convincing proofs of his resurrection from the dead. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Uh, Another way you could say it, it is a fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's not a joke, it's not a game, it's not a gag, it's not a myth. It is a fact historically attested to eyewitness accounts, thousands of people that knew, that saw, that heard, there is no doubt that Jesus was raised. The reality is that the resurrection is a reality. It happened. It happened 1,982 years ago today, April 5th, 33 AD. Jesus was raised from the dead. Why do so many people say it's symbolic? That offers us no hope. If it wasn't true, if it wasn't real... My death is not going to be a symbolic death. I am going to die and my death will be a real death. And therefore, if Christ's resurrection from the dead was just a symbolic metaphor, if it wasn't truth, if it wasn't fact, then I have no real body, no real resurrection to look forward to. It would just be symbolic and I will stay in the grave unable to be raised. But that's not the case. Jesus was raised so that we could be raised. D.L. Moody said, Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead, but don't you believe a word of it, because at that moment I shall be more alive than I am now. We know that because of the resurrection. We know that because Jesus paved the way for our glorification, our resurrection from the dead. So many things we could say about what happened, the effects of Jesus being raised from the dead. But I want to confine our time to just one chapter, Revelation chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 5. And we're going to see this morning the effects of the resurrection of Jesus. Just a couple different effects that happened because of the resurrection of Jesus. I want to show you biblically what the resurrection of Jesus produces in your life, what it produces in human history, what it produces even in heaven at this very moment. And through it all, I want to see the worthiness of our Savior because of what he has done. I want to hold Jesus high in our affections, in our minds, in our hearts, and see his worthiness again anew afresh. Revelation chapter 5, John writes, verse 1, I saw In the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a book, a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book, the little scroll, or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping, for behold, look, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders. A little lamb standing as if slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book, that little scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book, to break its seals, for you were slain, you were slaughtered, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing forever. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth And under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Oh, father, we want to be amazed by your son. He is worthy of all our affections. All our adorations. We are so easily amused and pleased by other lesser things. So just this morning, God, we pray as we stare at Jesus that every single affection, every single competing affection and allegiance that we might have in this world would be put in light of the glory of Jesus Christ and his glory would so overpower any other desire of our hearts. That this day he would be set apart as first in everything. Everything would truly have its rightful place in view of Jesus, his supremacy, his glory, his magnificence. We need your help to see Jesus. We need your help to see him. We look with fleshly eyes and we are like the Pharisees who seen they do not see. We can read with our fleshly eyes, but we need your spirit to be able to see with our spiritual eyes. So open our spiritual eyes. May we see Jesus clearly, wonderfully, the Lamb who was slain in our place and is now raised to life again. Jesus, receive all glory this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. This scene in Revelation chapter 5 is an absolutely amazing scene. And what I want to do this morning as we walk through it is show you five different ways in which Jesus is worthy because of what he has done. Five ways that Jesus is worthy because of what he has done through his death and his resurrection. Five weighty, glorious, amazing realities about our Savior, about the worthiness of our Savior because of what he has done in dying in our place and in being raised to newness of life. This scene is an amazing scene. John is the last living apostle. He's writing about 90 to 95 AD on the Isle of Patmos. He was exiled there for his faith in Jesus Christ. And the church in Asia Minor, the church universal pretty much at that time, was struggling. Some churches were doing well. All were under heavy persecution. Most were compromising. Many were dying. There were only a select few that were thriving And the question that all of the churches are asking is, where did Jesus go? He was here, we followed him, and he's gone. Where did he go? What is he doing? Are we all going to be killed? Are we going to just die out? What does he want from us? He said he would never leave us or forsake us, and yet he's gone. He's in heaven. What should we do? Is there hope? And so God speaks through John. He shows him this vision, and John writes it down. And in reality, this is just a hopeful letter to say, no, I haven't left you. I haven't forsaken you, and I will never forsake you. I am with you. I want to comfort you. So in chapter 1, God reminds believers of who he is, specifically his risen Savior. He is alive. He is well. We've seen a picture of Jesus before. We saw that the Sunday after Christmas in Revelation chapter 1. He's a conquering king. He holds the keys of death. Chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are to those present churches, to those seven churches, the existing churches, to encourage, to challenge, to help, to convict, to plead with them to follow Christ and to persevere, to overcome. Chapter 4 and 5, then, move from the earth and into heaven. John is caught up in this vision in heaven to see the throne room of God and to see what takes place at the very pinnacle, the zenith of heaven, staring at the Lamb of, of God who was slain. So I want to, this morning, dive into that throne room experience in chapter 5 and see these five ways in which Jesus magnificently, gloriously uh, is worthy of our honor, is worthy of our praise, is worthy of our adoration. So number one, Jesus has absolute control of history. We've read through this chapter and we see that at the beginning of this chapter, There is this little scroll, and it's going to be given to Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, and he's going to take the scroll, and he's the only one worthy to hold the scroll and to open the scroll. We have to ask what the scroll is, and in answering that question, we come to this first point, that Jesus has absolute control of history. Verse 1, John says, I saw, so he's speaking of himself, I, John, saw In the right hand of him, that's the Father who sat on the throne. So there's some anthropomorphic vision happening here because God is spirit. No one can see the Father. And yet there's a hand holding a scroll. And the scroll or the book is written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. Roman wills used to be sealed up this way. You would take a scroll, you would open the scroll out, you would start writing a will or a title deed or a contract. And as you're writing down, you'd write it and as you'd roll it up, once you'd finished a certain portion of it, you would seal it and then you'd write more and then you'd roll up and you'd seal it again. Then you'd write more and you roll it up and you'd seal it again and so on and so forth. Seven times you would seal it. This scroll is a title deed and it's the title deed to the entire earth. It's the title deed to the universe. It's the title deed to human history, past, present, and future. It's written on the inside. That's the contract part. And it's also written on the back. What would happen in that time is you'd write the full details on the inside of the scroll and it's very large and it's very weighty and you would seal it up. And then on the outside, since it was already sealed up, if somebody came to look at it and said, I wonder what this scroll is about, they would write on the outside to say, this is what the scroll contains. So on the inside, we have the actual details of the contract. On the outside, it's just a summary of the contract. So this scroll in its entirety describes the process by which possession of the universe is to be retaken by God through his rightful heir, to be taken back from the usurper who took it when paradise was lost in the garden. This scroll is the final full account of how the rightful heir is going to take possession and take back through severe wrath, through judgment, and through salvation, all that is rightfully his. What this scroll represents is that chance, and fate do not reign. God alone reigns. And because Jesus has overcome the grave, because Jesus has been slaughtered and has been raised, he's the only one, as we saw, as we read, he's the only one who's worthy to take that scroll and to open it and to fulfill all of the contents of the scroll. Specifically, the contents of the scroll are laid out from chapter 6 in Revelation through chapter 19. And it's a, it's a, Amazing content, beautiful, terrifying. The whole point is to bring the redeemed to salvation and to judge sinners who have rejected their Messiah. Jesus has absolute control of history. Today, there is not one speck of dust that can move without Jesus saying, you should move. I want you to move. I'm going to move you. Jesus has control like we could not possibly imagine. We think of control as, I know the majority of what's going to happen, but some of the details will kind of work out as they happen. Jesus orchestrates plans. He is the only one who has absolute control of history. Number two, not only does he have absolute control of history, but he alone is worthy and able to open the scroll. He is the only one who is worthy and able to open the scroll. We see this in verses two through three. John says, so he has this scroll. He sees this scroll that the Father has in His hand, and then he sees in verse two a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals. But it's not just worthiness. He also says, verse three, and no one in heaven, on earth, or are on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book. So there's two aspects here. Somebody has to be worthy and somebody has to be able. I like that John says, this is a strong angel. No one in heaven is worthy or able of opening this scroll, even the strong angel. This guy's strong. This, this reminds me of um, when my wife will ask me to open a jar of something. And... Um, I I open it with everything I have, and I'm trying to open it, and it, just won't pop. You know, you're waiting for that pop. And so I set it down, and trying to be the man that I am, I go grab a dish towel and say, "Okay, I gotta, I have not opened this. I gotta get this." And as I'm grabbing the dish towel, she walks over and she just goes, "Done, instantly." And I look, and I go, "Well, I, I thought I was strong, but I guess not." And then I always say, well, "What do we say?" Well, I got to start it for you, right? I got to start it for you. Maybe the strong angel has tried to get it started, but he can't. He can't even begin to open it. He's not worthy to even hold it. Think of everyone who is in heaven at this moment. An angel can't open it. David, who slew Goliath, obviously has some amount of faith and strength. He can't open it. Samson, one of the strongest men to ever live, he can't even open it. Michael, the archangel that is very, very powerful, so much that he fights with the devil over the body of Moses, according to Jude. He can't open it. No one can open this. No one is able. No one is worthy. Jesus alone is able and worthy. Jesus alone is able and worthy to throw out Satan, to wipe out demonic power, to destroy sinners, to obliterate sin, to reverse the curse. Jesus alone is able. That's why John says, verse 3, no one. Literally, not even one individual, one created being, no one was able. Jesus alone is worthy and able. Number three, not only does Jesus hold all human history in his hands, sovereignly controlling it because of his death and resurrection, not only is he worthy and able to open this scroll, unlike anyone else in heaven, but number three, apart from Jesus, only weeping would exist. This is in verse 4. Apart from Jesus, this describes his worthiness to us. Without him, only weeping exists. Verse 4. Then I began to weep greatly. It's the same verb used in Luke nineteen forty-one of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. An unrestrained emotion. You couldn't even control it. You're, you're trying to, but you aren't able to control the weeping that's going on. That's John here. He's weeping greatly because no one was found worthy to open this scroll or to look into it. Why is he weeping? He's weeping because he knows the contents on the inside of the scroll. He knows that the contents hold the power and the ability and the process and the procedure to bring human history to its final culmination, to save sinners by grace, to judge the wicked in their sin and to restore heaven and earth to the way that it's supposed to be. W.A. Criswell writes this, These tears that John weeps represent the tears of all God's people through all the centuries. Those tears of the Apostle John are the tears of Adam and Eve driven out of the Garden of Eden as they bowed over the first grave, as they watered the dust of the ground with their tears over the silent, still form of their son Abel. These are the tears of the children of Israel in bondage as they cried unto God in their affliction and slavery. They are the tears of God's elects through the centuries as they cried unto heaven. They are the sobs and the tears that have been wrung from the heart and soul of God's people as they looked on their silent dead, as they stand beside their open graves, as the experience and the trials and the suffering of life, heartaches and disappointments indescribable. Such is the curse That sin has laid on God's beautiful creation. And this is the condemnation of the hand of him who holds it, that usurper, that interloper, that intruder, that alien, that stranger, that dragon, that serpent, that Satan devil. And John wept audibly for the failure to find a redeemer because it meant that this earth and its curse is consigned forever to death. It meant that death and sin and condemnation and hell should reign forever and ever. And the sovereignty of God's earth should remain forever in the hands of Satan. That's why he's weeping. If nobody can open this scroll, no one can be saved. No one can be redeemed. No one can be made alive again. John Stott says that apart from the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, history is an enigma Without Jesus doing his redeeming work, we have no history. Human history will fail. And so only weeping exists if we do not have Jesus, our Savior, slaughtered and raised from the dead. But we all know, we celebrate today. He is alive and well. He is worthy to open this scroll. And so number four, one of the aspects of the worthiness of Christ is that Jesus conquered So that we could conquer Jesus conquered number four so that we could conquer. This is verses five through seven An elder one of the elders an elder is just a representative of the church There are 24 of them. So some people say it's um, the the 12 sons of, uh, of Israel Jacob the 12 tribes of Israel represented and then the 12 apostles some people say it's that way Some people say it's the raptured church Either way, it is the representation of the church. These are redeemed people. That's what you have to know. And so this elder, a redeemed individual, says to John, stop weeping. Weep no more. Why? Because there is someone. You haven't seen him. You don't know where he is. You think it was a strong angel. You think it might have been an elder, one of these living creatures. No. There is one who can take the scroll and open it. Behold, look, turn your eyes to the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. That's from Genesis 48, 8 through 10. It's a reference to the Messiah. It's a reference to Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And then he uses another reference, the root of David, Isaiah 11, 1. Again, a reference to the Messiah and the work that the Messiah would do. He's a king. He's the lion And he has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Jesus, the lion of Judah, has overcome. Overcome, I love that word. You know that word, Nike. It's where we get our word Nike from. Niko, overcome in the Greek, conqueror, victorious conqueror, which leads to the question What did Jesus conquer? He is a conqueror. He overcame. But the question we need to ask this morning and answer biblically is what did Jesus conquer? Two things. He conquered the penalty and the power of sin. He conquered the penalty and the power of sin. Sin for all of us has a twofold problem. Sin presents us with a penalty that we could not pay and a power that we cannot overcome, penalty and power. And if we inquire as to what the penalty is and what sin's strongest power is, the interesting thing is that it's answered the same way. Sin's penalty is death and sin's power is death. Sin's penalty is death and sin's power is death. Now we have a little capacity to fight against greed, lust, anger, pride, different sins like that. But you and I could never fight victoriously against the power of sin in our death. We can't raise ourselves from the dead. Sin's penalty is death, eternal separation from God forever in hell. I was reading an article this week. Um, So many articles start happening about the, the cross, about the resurrection. Um, during Easter time, and it's all all written by people who don't even believe Jesus existed as a real person. Um, One individual said, I believe in God, and I believe in a just God, and therefore I believe that a just God would never send a finite person to an infinite hell. They were trying to say that God just destroys wicked sinners, uh, annihilates them, soul sleeps, what Jehovah's Witnesses believe said, I totally believe in God, and I believe because he is just, because he is loving, that would be unfair to have somebody who has sinned in a finite space of time to spend an infinite amount of punishment in hell forever. That's not fair. To which I would say, and and my wife said it so well to some Jehovah's Witnesses who came to our door, they said just that. They said, God's a loving God, and therefore he would never send anyone to hell. And my wife said, then you don't understand the holiness of God. You don't understand the holiness of God. We are so man-centered that we think of our eternal punishment because of our offense against God. We think of it in our terms. We think of it as our doing. Um, We're so man-centered that we think about our sins and our offenses instead of who we offended. If um, Let's say Josh and I are hanging out playing basketball and... I get really mad at him because he is just beating me 75 to 2, just crushing me. And I get super mad at him and I punch him in the face. What are the consequences of me doing that? Um, We're probably not going to be friends for a little while. Maybe our our relationship is a little strained. Maybe he's not going to play basketball with me for a couple years. Maybe I have to go to anger management. Maybe I can't play basketball again. We'll be friends again, but it's going to be a strained relationship. Let's say that Josh feels threatened because I'm so incredibly muscular that as I punch him, he says, you know what? I'm going to call the cops. I'm scared. Patrick could destroy me. That would never happen. (laughs) So Josh calls the cops and the cops come out. Let's say I get angry and I punch a cop. What's the consequence? What's the punishment of me punching a police officer? It's going to be different than me punching Josh. Let's say this continues and continues and I go to the Supreme Court. Let's say I go before the President of the United States and I decide to punch the President. What is my consequence then? You see, I did the exact same action for all three people groups, but because of the person that I sinned against, that I offended, because of who they are, my punishment will be different. It makes total sense. It's totally logical. The world knows that you cannot go before a king or a queen and just decide to punch them and spit in their face and get away with it. Like if it was just a buddy and you were hanging out and you said, I'm mad at you. The person is different. And therefore, if you sin, if I sin against a holy God, our punishment is equal to the offense that we have sinned against God. God is infinite. Therefore, since we've sinned and offended an infinite God, our punishment is justly an infinite punishment. We're so man-centered even in looking at our sin. We don't like looking at our sin. So when we do look at our sin, we're so man-centered to say, "Um, I just sinned in a finite area of time, in in a finite space. It's not about what we did. It's about who we sinned against. And since we have sinned against the God of the universe then God is absolutely just. Even though we are finite people, we have sinned against an infinite and holy God, and therefore our punishment is justly an infinite death. You need to know that. You need to know that, because that question will be on the lips of many people that you share the gospel with. You need to know and be able to walk through the holiness of God. It's logic that will make sense to them, and it's biblical. Therefore, If we are to pay for our own sins, we pay forever. That's the penalty. We pay forever. And therefore, there never comes a time when we can say it is finished. We can never say our punishment has been finished. It's complete. It's paid in full. It can never be said of us that the payment for our sins have been completed and God's just demands against our sins and against us are fully satisfied. We cannot say that That's why we spend forever in hell if we do not have our sins forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. But, here's the good news, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3 says, Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins to pay the penalty for our sins. But, since sin's penalty is not only death, but its power is death, Then if Jesus stayed dead, if he died for our sins and then he stayed dead, then he would be in hell forever, still under the wrath of God, infinitely stuck in the payment. And he would not be able to say it is finished. He would still be dead. That's why he had to rise from the dead. If he remains in the grave, then the penalty of sin is still being paid for because the penalty and power of sin is death. So he has to pay the penalty, and then break the power by rising from the dead. If he stayed dead, the penalty of sin is still being paid, and thus its payment hasn't been paid fully. If he remains in the grave, if he is dead in a grave right now, then sin's power is greater than his. And rather than conquering sin, he is subject to it, and it holds him to this day if he has not been raised. But... The single most glorious reality about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what it demonstrated. The horrific penalty of our sin has been forgiven fully and the power, that crushing power of our sin has been conquered completely. He paid the penalty on the cross and then he conquered the power of sin when he was raised from the grave. These are the realities demonstrated and proven when Jesus walked out of the tomb alive that day. What did he overcome? He overcame sin's penalty and sin's power. Sin's penalty on the cross, sin's power by rising from the dead. That's why Jonathan Edwards says the devil had, as it were, swallowed up Christ on Friday as the whale had swallowed up Jonah. But it was a deadly poison to him. He gave him a mortal wound in his own bowels. He was soon sick of his morsel and was forced to do by him as the whale did by Jonah. And to this day, that devil is heart sick of what he then swallowed as his prey. I love that. He goes on to say, thus the true Samson does more towards the destruction of his enemies at his death than in his life. In yielding up himself to death, he pulls down the temple of Dagon, as it were, and destroys many thousands of his enemies, even while they are making themselves sport in his sufferings. Genesis 3.15, Jesus crushed the serpent's head on that day when he was raised from the dead. He crushed him. The serpent, the devil, Satan... Killed, enjoyed doing it on the cross. Put it, remember, Jesus said, this is the hour of darkness. Do your worst. And he did, and he crushed his heel. He dealt a mortal blow. And he thought he had won. And Jesus, out of the grave, crushes his head and says, you have forever been conquered. What did Jesus overcome? Oh, he overcame so much. He overcame so much. That's why the elder says in verse five, he is the one who can open it. He has overcome so as to open the book. If he hadn't overcome, he couldn't open the book. But since he has overcome sin's penalty and sin's power, he can open that scroll and he can carry out all of human history. Now, step in the mind of, of John, the elder says there was a lion who overcame. There was a lion who conquered. And John says, of course, that's what lions do. Lions conquer, lions overcome whatever they want to overcome. The king of the jungle, of course, he's going to overcome. And so he looks, verse 6, he turns, excited, expecting to see this enormous lion that had overcome, this enormous, glorious lion that is the only one who can open this scroll. And what does he see? Verse 6, he sees between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, A lamb, the Greek word here is in the diminutive, a little pet lamb, a tiny little pet lamb, standing, as if slain. One of my favorite Greek words, phagizomai, slaughtered. He had been slaughtered, and it's obvious. He's a lamb. How are lambs slaughtered? By the slitting of their throats, letting the blood rush out. The life is in the blood, so bleed it dry. So John probably looks over at this lamb and he sees an enormous scar. Hair probably can't even grow back. The wool probably can't grow back to where that scar is around the neck of this lamb. And yet he is standing, not slumped over. A slaughtered lamb slumps over, unable to move. This slaughtered lamb is standing. He has the scars, but he is standing. He also has some other amazing things. He has seven horns. Horns in Revelation and also in the rest of the Bible are depictions of power. So this lamb has perfect, the number seven is the perfect completion, complete perfect power, otherwise known as omnipotence. He is omnipotent. He is perfectly all, completely powerful. And he has seven eyes, so he is omniscient. He knows everything. He sees everything, perfect seeing, perfect vision, complete knowledge And it's played out through the Spirit, Um, the Spirit that is given uh, from him, sent out into all all the earth. This is from Isaiah 11 and Revelation 1, describing the sevenfold attributes of the Spirit. But there is a lamb. John hears of the lion, looks to see a lion, and sees a lamb. When you come to the New Testament, there are only about six different occasions in the entire New Testament, uh, aside from Revelation, where Jesus is specifically called a lamb. Let me give you a couple. John chapter 1, you know it, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John 1 also has another similar sentence to it. Acts chapter 8 verse 32, uh, a familiar passage in 1 Peter 1:19 that says Jesus was the lamb who is without blemish, perfect and spotless. 6 times from Matthew to Jude, Jesus is called the lamb. But this term lamb is used 28 times in the book of Revelation. 28 times in the book of Revelation. It's a very key title for Jesus. And that's why we celebrated on Friday night that Jesus is the Lamb of God. This is an enormously powerful key title for the Son of God. Jesus conquered by dying. He destroyed sin and death by being destroyed by sin and death. He wins by losing. He crushes death by being killed and then rising from the dead. So, verse 7, Jesus comes, this little lamb, and he takes the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Jesus is the only one who is worthy to take it, and he has conquered. And I love this. Romans 8, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself forth. He overcame. Why? So we could become overcomers. And earlier in, verse, in chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation, Jesus says to the churches, these seven churches, the only way that you can make it to the finish line and be glorified in my presence is if you overcome. You must overcome. And that might leave us thinking, well, it's up to us. We need to do something. But Jesus says, no, I overcame for you. So trust in my overcoming and it will be your overcoming. He overcame so that we could overcome. Fifthly and finally, Jesus deserves all praise and all glory and all adoration forever. Jesus deserves all praise and all glory and all adoration forever. This is verses 8 to the end of the chapter in verse 14. He deserves it all. Once he takes this scroll because of what he has done, the only reason he can take it, the only way in which he is able to take this scroll is because of his death and resurrection. And because he takes this scroll, because of his worthiness, everyone in heaven starts praising him everyone. Verse eight, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. John uses a phrase here to say immediately when he had taken the book immediately, when that transaction happens when the father gives the rightful possession of the earth and of human history and of the universe to the son, immediately heaven starts praising immediately. These four living creatures are special angels seen in the book of Revelation. They're always watching. They're always worshiping. They're surrounding the throne, protecting. And these elders are the representation of the church. And they all fall down before the lamb. What are they holding? They're holding a harp. This is, by the way, where so many thousands of years people have had the the concept of Believers in heaven holding harps sitting on clouds. It's only one place that the Bible talks about this, and it comes from this verse right here. It's a bad, bad way to make a theology that has been devastating to people who have no hope of that being a joyous reality. That's not what we're going to be doing. That's not what these people are doing. What is this harp? Well, it's music, it's praise, and it's prophecy. We don't have time to go into this prophecy aspect, but let me give you one verse. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 5. It's very interesting. Harps were used by prophets to signify, I'm going to give you a word from God. Thus saith the Lord, here's a little harp, boom, I'm going to give you God's word. The reason why it's important to know that is because they're holding this harp and they're holding golden bowls full of incense. We don't need to explain that because John explains it for us. They are the prayers of the saints. Put these two things together, and the worship is from God's redeemed people because what has been prophesied to happen in Jesus redeeming his people and bringing the new heaven and the new earth to completion, what Jesus has been promised to do and what we have been praying for him to do is finally happening. There's prayers and there's prophecy. God, you prophesied that it would happen that evil would finally lose one day, that you would vindicate your name. We pray that even now when we see Christians being martyred left and right throughout all of the world, our brothers and sisters even today that can't worship like we are worshiping God because they are afraid that they might lose their life. It's illegal for them to do that in their countries. They're worshiping in private. They can't gather together like we are. And so what do we pray for them? Our hearts cry out. We're weeping because the lamb needs to take the scroll And come back and vindicate himself and those that have died because of him. So the prophecy about him coming and the the prayers for him to come finally have a culmination. And so they sing. Verse 9, they sang a new song. This song potentially might be in Isaiah 42, 9 to 13. That the former things have passed away. They've come to pass and they're done and new things are happening. And that Jesus is worthy, the Messiah, the Lamb of God is worthy. Interestingly enough, what the elders and the angels and the people in heaven ascribe to Jesus in chapter 5 is what they ascribe to the Father in chapter 4. Don't ever let anybody tell you that Jesus is not God. Angels, strong angels, mighty angels that come and display themselves before people, in the Bible we see... Everyone falls down starts worshiping them, afraid, giving them awe, giving them adoration, and they all say, don't worship. Even in the book of Revelation, John fell down before an angel, starts worshiping, and the angel says, I'm not the one to worship. So if Jesus is not fully God and is just an angel or just an awesome person, then if John and the rest of everyone in heaven is praising him and giving him adoration, he would have said, no, 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 I don't deserve that. I'm just an angel. But he accepts this worship because he is God, very God. What do they sing? Uh, what, what they sing, we don't really need to describe. We don't need much exposition. We don't need to explain it. In fact, the more explanation we give to it, I, I believe the more we just diminish it. We don't need to add to it. It's clear. They say you are worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals, to open it. Why? Because you were slaughtered. And you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You redeemed, that's that word, purchase. You bought for the Father men from every tribe. And how did you buy? You bought them through your blood. That's what it cost. And you have made them, verse 10, to be a kingdom. We are not a part of a kingdom. We are a kingdom. We are a kingdom, and we've been made a kingdom, and we are priests to our God. Why priests, First Peter chapter 2, verse 5 and 2, verse 9, says the same thing. It's a reference to, even as we saw in Family Bible Hour this morning, with the veil being torn, we have complete, full access to the Father. We're priests. We have complete access. You don't need to go confess your sins to a priest. You have a great high priest, and you have complete access to him, and that's all you need. We have access, full, complete access to God the Father through the Son. And they will reign upon the earth with him. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, myriads and myriads, myriads of myriads, And then thousands of thousands. This basically means in the Greek, it's a a formula to say 10,000 times 10,000. And the reason why it's phrased this way is because 10,000 was the largest Greek number that they had. They didn't have a word for millions. They didn't have a word for that because 10,000 was really the biggest number that they were going to count to. So since all they had was that word, that's what John uses. 10,000s upon 10,000s upon 10,000s upon 10,000s. I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe that makes 100 million. If you want to know, ask Michelle. Um, in, in Luke chapter 12, verse 1, and in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, these, this, this formula, this expression, is just translated innumerable. That's the point. It's not a number. It's just I can't even describe it. So I'm just going to say thousands upon thousands upon thousands. We can't even describe how grand it is. It's innumerable. And what are they saying with a loud voice? I love that. Um, I've had many times in leading worship through song where people say, turn the music down. And I do. I, I, I want to be selfless in leading the music. So I don't want to say, no, wear earplugs. I'm not going to do that. Um, don't want the music to be hurting your ears. But I always think of this verse when they say that. <laughs> Oh, it's going to be so loud in heaven. It is going to be so loud. Now we're going to have glorified ears that can't be hurt and deafened, but oh, it's going to be so loud. So loud to the point where Isaiah 6 says that the throne room trembles, it quakes. Anybody else feel the earthquake a couple days ago? There were a couple of earthquakes that happened. And I couldn't help, I think it was Saturday, right? I couldn't help but think, was it Saturday or Friday? I couldn't help but think, it was Saturday? Think of the earthquake that happened on Good Friday when the one sustaining the entire universe was slaughtered and then the earthquake that happened on Sunday when the one who sustains the entire universe was brought back to life. These voices are profound in how loud they are and in what they say. Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered To receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Seven things, seven characteristics, sevenfold perfection. John MacArthur says it this way, Jesus is worthy to receive recognition because of his power, his omnipotence. He is worthy to receive recognition because of his riches, his spiritual wealth, his material wealth. He owns everything. He is worthy to receive praise because of his wisdom. He is omniscient. He made wisdom, wisdom. He is worthy to receive recognition and praise because of his might and his strength, his reserve of power. He is worthy to receive honor because of his holy character. He is worthy to receive glory or recognition of his divine majesty and heavenly radiance. He is worthy to receive blessing because of his absolute perfection. That's reality. It's not a fantasy. It's not these things should be given to you, but they're not yours yet. It's you should receive worthy praise because of your worthiness, because of who you are. We adore you because of this seven sevenfold perfection of your characteristics. Glory upon glory upon glory. And that's why John's going to say at the end of this letter, come quickly, Lord Jesus. If that's who you are and we know it's true, we want you here now. Make this happen now. And who knows? It could happen today. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen in our lifetime. Everybody just keeps asking me, don't you think he's coming quickly we don't know the time of the hour. We don't know the place. We don't know what's going to be happening, when it's going to happen. Jesus can come back. We know, we know where he's coming back, but we don't know when it's going to happen. sure seems like it's getting closer, but it's in God's timetable. But we want him to come. Verse 13, every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea, everything, all things in them, all of heaven, all of earth, All the things under the earth. So gophers are popping up to say hi. They are all saying to him who sits on the throne. He sits. He is not standing. His work of redemption has been accomplished. He has purchased. He's not redeeming people. He redeemed a people at the cross. When he said it is finished, he paid in full the debt of all those who would believe, and he offers it to the whole world. He sits on the throne. Now, he is walking around in chapter 2 and 3 in the middle of his churches in chapter 1 through 3. He's walking around, so he has a work that he is still doing, but this work of redemption is done. He's sitting on the throne. And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever. And ever, and everyone keeps on saying, the four living creatures around the throne, the elders fall down and they keep saying, Amen. Let it be so. Let it be true. It is true. These songs that they're singing, these new songs, we will be singing and they will never grow old because the wonder and the joy of our salvation will never diminish in heaven. Can we be honest? It diminishes here. There are many moments in my lifetime where I think, yeah, I'm saved. How cool. Praise God. Couldn't have done it myself. Obviously, it was Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Awesome. Let's keep going. In heaven, that will never be a reality. We will always be blown away. That's why our songs will always include the lamb who was slain. We will be able to see him, his scars, the marks of his death, of his slaughter. And we will never get over the fact that we're there because we will never get over the fact that we are unworthy. We shouldn't be there. And Jesus is the only reason we are there. That's why we keep worshiping. It's a cycle. All of these things happen because Jesus overcame. That's the hinge of chapter five. Who is worthy to open the scroll? Only somebody who died and was raised from the dead for the sins of the world. Only the one who was slain, only the one who could purchase and redeem for God. All of this happens ultimately because of the culmination of that sacrifice in the resurrection. The resurrection proves that not even death escapes Jesus' lordship. He kills sin at the cross. He disarms all the spiritual rulers and authorities at the cross. And in conquering the grave, he emerges with the keys to death in his triumphant fist. As one author says, if Jesus is risen, then nothing else matters. And if Jesus is not risen, then nothing else matters. Stake your eternal destiny on the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. We must fall down and worship just as this throne room in heaven is doing, even now, even now as we speak. Do you remember the sorrow that we had from Good Friday? The sadness. I talked to my, my brother Keith, uh, Keith Evans, and he said, this is a hard day on Friday. He said, this is a hard day. Friday, there's always a gloom. Whenever I see you on Friday, I want to say, it's so good to see you with a smile on my face like I normally do. But it's hard to say that because not all was well. I am the reason why Jesus was slaughtered. But all of that sorrow changed. Three days later, Jesus was in the grave Friday Remember, we talked about Lazarus being buried and he'd been dead for four days. Remember, Jewish customs count any portion of a day as a day. So if Lazarus dies at 1159 on Tuesday night, then they count that as one day of being dead, even though it's just a minute. Jesus died at three o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, was put into the grave by sunset. And therefore, he was in the grave one day, Friday, one day, Saturday. And even though he rose early in the morning on Sunday, he still was in the grave on Sunday, therefore three days in the tomb. The sorrow that we had on Good Friday and the joy that we have today is so wonderfully expressed by our friend C.S. Lewis. In the Chronicles of Narnia, I read from a portion of that on Good Friday where Edmund was supposed to die by the hand of the witch, And instead, Aslan, a picture of Jesus, gave himself for Edmund's place and died the death that Edmund deserved. Edmund's sisters, Susan and Lucy, creep over out onto the hilltop as the moon was low and the thin clouds are passing around and they could still see the shape of the lion lying dead in his bonds. Down they knelt, In the wet grass and kissed his face, stroked his beautiful fur, what was left of it, anyways, and cried until they could cry no more. And then they looked at each other and held each other's hands for mere loneliness and they cried again, and then again they were silent. I hope no one who reads this book, Lewis writes, has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night, but if you have been, If you've been up all night and cried until you have no more tears left in you, then you will know that there comes, in the end, a sort of quietness. You feel as if nothing is ever going to happen again. I'm so cold, said Lucy. So am I, said Susan. Let's walk around for a bit. They walk around, and at that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. What's that, said Lucy, clutching Susan's arm I feel afraid to turn around, said Lucy. Something awful is happening. They're doing something worse to him, said Lucy. Come on. And she turned, pulling Susan round with her. The rising of the sun had made everything look so different. All colors and shadows were changed that for a moment they didn't even see the most important thing. And then they did. The stone table was broken. The table that the lion had been slaughtered on was broken into pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end. And there was no Aslan. Oh, oh, cried the two girls rushing back to the table. Oh, it's too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have left the body alone. Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it all mean? Is it more magic? Yes. Yes. A great voice behind their backs said, it is more magic. They looked around, there shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for it had grown again, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost as much as frightened as they were, glad. Aren't you dead, dear Aslan, said Lucy? Not now, said Aslan. You're not a... a, asked Susan in a shaky voice. She couldn't even bring herself to say the word ghost. Do I look it, he said... Oh, you're real, you're real. Oh, Aslan, cried Lucy, and both girls flung themselves upon him and covered him with kisses. But what does it all mean? Asked Susan when they were somewhat calmer. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. My friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not magic. It is God working to reverse the curse, to redeem for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, to worship and praise God. He is risen just as he said. So what is our response to all of this? Just two things in conclusion. Number one, we must be amazed at the beauty of Jesus. We must be amazed at the beauty of of Jesus. John Piper said, The human heart was made to stand in awe of ultimate excellence. You were made to admire Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is a wonderful counselor. He is a mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. And if your heart is not much taken up with him, then you don't need to look any farther to know the deepest source of your frustration. If you are looking somewhere to be overjoyed and to be excited and to be enthralled and to be satisfied, and you're looking for it in anything other than Jesus Christ, then you know why you're frustrated. You know why you're having such a difficult time. You know why you're depressed. You know why you are in despair. Because your heart was made to be satisfied by Jesus alone. A student once asked Bonaventure, the medieval Franciscan teacher, why why don't men love God more? Good question. Why don't men love God more? And he answered, they don't love him because they don't know him. That's why I want to know Jesus. That's why we need to preach Jesus. That's why Jesus must be in front of our faces, in front of our eyes, before our vision, every moment that we get together. Specifically this morning, I want us to be amazed at the lion-like lamb and the lamb-like lion. Be amazed with me at the beauty of Jesus, at his nature and his character. Be amazed by what Jonathan Edwards says is his diverse excellencies. For example, we admire Jesus for his glory. He is beautiful in his glory, but we admire him even more because his glory is mingled with humility. We admire him for his transcendence, but even more because his transcendence is accompanied by condescension. We admire him for his uncompromising justice, but even more because it's tempered with mercy. We admire him for his majesty, but even more because it's a majesty in meekness. We admire him because of his equality with God, but even more because as God's equal, he nevertheless has a deep reverence for God and submission to him. We admire him because of how worthy he was of all good, but even more because this was accompanied by an amazing patience to suffer evil. We admire him because of his sovereign dominion over the world, but even more because this dominion was clothed with a spirit of obedience and submission. We love the way he stumped the proud scribes with his wisdom, and we love it even more because he could be simple enough to like children and spend time with them. And we admire him because he could still the storm, but even more because he refused to use the power to strike the Samaritans with lightning. He refused to use it to get himself down from the the cross. In summary, Piper says, the Lion of Judah conquered because he was willing to act the part of a lamb. He came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday like a king on the way to a throne. And he went out of Jerusalem on Good Friday like a lamb on the way to the slaughter. He drove out the robbers from the temple like a lion, devouring its prey. And then at the end of the week, he gave his majestic neck to the knife. And they slaughtered the Lion of, of Judah like a lamb. And so he conquered sin and death and Satan, not just because he was a lion, but because he was a lamb-like lion. May we stand amazed at the beauty of our Savior. And finally, number two, we must be broken by the mercy of our Savior. We must be broken by the mercy of our Savior. In chapter five at the beginning, in the right hand of the Father is this scroll. Now, the Father is God. The Father could have opened this scroll. Why didn't he? Why didn't the Father open the scroll? Because... God is a God of love. And if he were to open the scroll by himself, there would be no mediator. There would be no go-between. And God would deal directly with sinful man. And thus we would all be consumed and salvation would be impossible. So God waits and he waits and he waits. And instead of opening that scroll and saying, we'll have done with human wickedness, we'll have done with humanity, he says, let's send a substitute. Let me crush him. Let me raise him from the dead so that I can offer mercy to those who would believe. No one, not your friends, not your spouse, not your parents, not a child, not a boss, not a teacher. No one but Jesus can make your future bright. Remember, without him, only weeping. Without him, all is meaningless and all is fearful. But with him, dear friends, with our Savior, The penalty and the power of sin has been conquered. He has overcome to offer us newness of life. Can I just plead with you before we pray? If you do not know Jesus Christ in a saving way, in a way where you admit, I am a sinner, I am worthy of infinite punishment. I have offended an infinitely holy God and therefore my punishment would be just if I were sent to hell. But we look and we see God poured out his wrath. The Father poured out his wrath on the Son so that we would never have to taste of that wrath. Can I plead with you? Repent of your sins. The things, the very things that Jesus died for to free us from. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ. Don't trust in yourself. You can never be good enough. That's why Jesus had to be perfect. You could never be righteous enough. You could never do enough good works to burn off your bad works. You need Jesus And as our signs say from John, you need to believe that he is the son of God, infinitely holy, perfect substitute. As the thief on the cross said, I justly deserve the punishment I receive, but you are perfect. You don't deserve what you're getting. Therefore, the only way I can enter heaven is if you remember me. I can't do anything. He didn't say, Jesus, what can I do to get to heaven? He says, remember me. There's no hope. Just remember me. And Jesus did not say I will remember you if, 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 if. You do, you do, you do. No, he said, I remember you. Admit your sin. Turn from it. Hate it. Despise it. Turn to Christ. Flee to him this morning. And you could celebrate today the resurrection of Jesus Christ in your place, paying the penalty and the power for your sins. For the rest of us who do believe, we must join with all of heaven and rejoice. Father, I thank you for Your word that is so clear. And so we do join with all of creation and with all of heaven and anticipate that day. We want that day to be today where every single creature, every single being, every single thing in the entire world glorifies you and praises you. We want that to be today. And until that day comes, we will sing of the glory of Jesus Christ the worthy lamb, slain before the foundation of the world, conquering sin and death, standing now in heaven for us.